Hi, everyone. You're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment. Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. Bill Shafter. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Offit, Director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. As an internationally recognized expert, he has served on CDC and FDA advisory committees and played a key role in reviewing the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. In addition to serving as co-editor of the seminal textbook Vaccines, Paul has authored several books with provocative titles such as Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All, and Bad Advice, Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your Best Source of Health Information. In 2013, NFID recognized Dr. Offit with the Maxwell Finland Award for Scientific Achievement. So, Paul, thanks so much for being here with us today. We're really happy to have you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So to get us started, Paul, can you tell us how you first got interested in infectious diseases and specifically vaccines? So I went to medical school at the University of Maryland, and there at the time was Ellen Wald, who was a pediatric infectious disease uh, specialist, Ted Woodward, who was a rickettsiologist, a well-known, sort of internationally known rickettsiologist, Richard Hornick, um, who also was an infectious disease expert. And at Maryland at the time, that was really a core group of infectious disease people. And, and as always, you know, the decisions that we make in life are often sort of just who we happen to bump into at various times. They just were compelling in that they combined, one, this tremendous clinical judgment with really a solid scientific background. And I just thought that was for me. And then when I went to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to do uh, ultimately an infectious disease fellowship, it was Dr. Plotkin, obviously, who was my most influential mentor. Well, that's a very exciting background story enriched with all kinds of important mentors, Paul. Now, as a scientist, you developed a vaccine that has saved the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of children. So what motivated you to switch gears and focus on public health policy. I guess I was sort of recruited into it. I think, you know, what uh, I had no knowledge or necessarily even interest initially in public health policy. I was, you know, in a laboratory at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, inoculating mice in a windowless concrete blocked room for like (laughs) a year. So so my goal during that period of time was to try and figure out which gene or genes coded for proteins that conferred virulence on the virus, which gene or genes coded for proteins that evoke neutralizing antibodies, which gene or genes evoke coded for proteins that evoke virus-specific cytotoxic T-cell responses. I mean, that's what I was doing. I mean, you're never really making a vaccine. You're just trying to understand the virus. It just so happened that I was fortunate enough to be part of a team with Stan Plotkin and Fred Clark that created the strains that became that vaccine. But then what happened was, I think because of my expertise on rotavirus, I was asked to be a voting member of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices and knew really very little about public health and public policy. But when I got to the ACIP, I was really impressed. I remember the person who impressed me the most at the time was the one 
woman named Becky Prevo, because I was asked to be head of the polio vaccine working group. And she'd spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. She'd seen a lot of polio. And she just was a typical CDC worker to me. I mean, as I learned, somebody who was very much dedicated to trying to help not only our country, but the world. Also, I had recently written a book about the Cutter incidents. I knew a lot about polio at the time and wanted to move us from the oral vaccine, which had, as you know, the rare but real side effect of permanent paralysis to the inactivated vaccine. And that was sort of my goal there for the first two years that I was on the ACIP because I headed that polio working group to move us away from OPV to IPV. It was just, I was recruited into it is what I would say. (laughs) Right place, right time. You know, I think, Paul, what's really interesting as a historian, you know, you've written about public health tragedies of the past that led to the systems that we now have in place to ensure vaccine safety and effectiveness. So unfortunately, confidence in these systems has waned in recent years. You know, what are your thoughts on how we regain that public trust, which is so critical? It's a great question. I think it is the question right now. I wrote a book recently called You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusion to Mass Vaccination, The Long Risky History of Medical Innovation. And when I started writing it, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Just the first signs of the pandemic. And the the goal of the book actually was to try to get people to understand that there is always a human price to pay for knowledge, that there has never been an innovation in history where there has not been some suffering and where that knowledge has been hard earned and no doubt always at a human cost. And we just can't accept that. We expect it to be perfect. I mean, if you look at these mRNA vaccines, for example, which you know launched in December of 2020, they're amazing. I would argue they are the greatest medical achievement in my lifetime. And my lifetime includes the development of a polio vaccine. And they have a very rare but very real side effect of myocarditis. And, and that, to some people, is intolerable. And when you consider the risk-benefit ratios of this vaccine, it's dramatic. Nonetheless, we still can't accept that. And I guess that, in some levels, was the purpose, at least, of that book. Well, I look forward to reading that one. I've read many of your others. But you know, Paul, Everyone recognizes, we've been kind of talking around this a little bit, everyone recognizes that public health and politics are, by their nature, interrelated. Now, many of us in the scientific community are deeply concerned about the encroachment of politics on science and public health. With your background, are there any example of politics intervening in a positive way? I think you could argue that Operation Warp Speed was at some level political. The $11.2 billion that was put up for that program, where you basically, instead of betting on one horse in a race, you bet on six horses in a race, you took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies. That's never happened before. I mean, the March of Dimes, and essentially in the 1950s, took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies, but that wasn't a government program. That was a private philanthropic organization. Here you had a government program that took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies and as a consequence made a vaccine. In 11 months, you had isolated that virus and sequenced it in January of 2020. 11 months later, you had two large clinical trials, which were the size of any adult or pediatric uh, vaccine program. And that was amazing. That was a government program under the Trump administration. So I think that's an example of, I guess, politics, if you will, helping science. I'll buy that. That sounds good. Good example. Uh You know, Paul, it's interesting. You've certainly never been afraid to take a bold public stance on important issues, whether it's, you know, debunking myths that link vaccines to autism or questioning the wisdom of administering smallpox vaccines in the early 2000s. I know that you've been targeted with hate mail and even death threats. So after all, has it really all been worth it? Definitely. I think what I learned in this, in some ways, the hard way is that, you know, when I was 
working solely on rotavirus, when I was only doing science and, you know, presenting at the American Society of Virology meetings or the double-stranded RNA meetings, you know, that's a pretty safe venue. I think the minute that you, I mean, you'll be criticized about your science, which is fine because that's how science advances. But I think the minute that, for example, I wrote a book like Autism's False Prophets and, and essentially called people out by name, you know, people like anti-vaccine activists like Barbara Fisher or others, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Andrew Wakefield, the minute you do that, you cross a line from science to politics. And politics is mean and personal and ugly, and you just have to accept that. I think that, you know, it's the old, you know, welcome to the NFL. If you don't want to get hit, don't play. <laughs> so, Paul, you and others have observed that now is a dangerous time for science in which we have moved from scientific literacy to scientific denialism. So thinking about all of us, what's the role of scientists and medical people in trying to address that problem? There are two groups of people, I think, one of whom is convincible and one of whom isn't. I think the convincible person is the skeptic the person who just wants to be shown information that convinces them. And I think we all should be skeptics about or skeptical about anything that we put into our bodies. I think the other is the cynic, the person who simply just doesn't trust you, doesn't trust the government, doesn't trust the scientific community. I'm not sure what convinces them, but I think our job as scientists and clinicians is to do what you do so well, Bill, which I think is to really explain in clear, compelling, passionate and compassionate terms why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it's our obligation to do that. You know, I'm, you know, was funded for 25 years by the National Institutes of Health through their R01 granting mechanism. Uh, who's paying my salary then? It's really the citizen that's paying my salary. It's the taxpayer that's paying my salary. And unless we convince people of how we do science, why it's important to do science and exactly what science is, then the taxpayer could just as easily stop doing it. And I think that this is a really scary time to me, just as you said. I think we're in a time now where people just declare their own truths, including scientific truths. And it worries me. I mean, you look at, take your pick, you know, climate change, creationism versus evolution, you know, vaccine side effects like autism. It's been hard to watch. But this is a really important time for all of us who are in this, doing science, being clinicians, to stand up because everybody assumes somebody else is doing it, but they're not. So we need to all stand up. You know, Paul, I think one of the things that we can all credit you with is also writing a book about some of these issues, which I think you've done so well. My question is, of all the books you've written, what was your favorite and why? It was probably vaccinated, the subtitle, which is One Man's Quest to Defeat the World's Deadliest Disease. It was the story of Maurice Hillman. I mean, I had Dr. Hillman was at Merck when I first met him. I'd known him for 20 years, and he was certainly an irascible character, a <laughs> unusual character. But I worked with, you know, Dr. Spotkin and Clark on the development of a rotavirus vaccine. That took us 25 years to make one vaccine. I mean, here's a guy who did either the primary research or development on nine of the 14 vaccines that we give to infants and young children. And in October of 2004, I actually just wasn't interested necessarily in writing a book. I just wanted to talk to him on a weekly basis. And I was going to record our discussions, mostly just selfishly to educate myself about how he thought about things in order for him to do as much as he did. And we were at a party once, uh, me and him and his wife, and his wife introduced me as his biographer. 
I thought, oh, wait, so, so she thinks I'm writing a book. But with that, I decided that I will write a book. And I think that last six months of his life, which he was kind enough to give me at least an hour or two every week of his time, became, you know, the book Vaccinated. So I feel like I captured him because he at the time also was interested in writing his own book. And you had to know Maurice to understand how he went about this. So he had started to write and he was initially very hesitant to give me stories about himself. But as it became clear that he was going to be overwhelmed by his cancer and be overwhelmed by his cancer soon, he became much more willing to tell me the stories that became the heart of this book. And when he passed away, his wife gave me what he had written so far, which was about 40 pages. And Dr. Hilleman's last name was before he changed it and ended with two N's, M-A-N-N, who's his German origin. And so his 40 pages had never gotten out of the time of Charlemagne. I mean, that's great. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Paul, as I was thinking about this question, Marla and I were thinking of questions to put to you. I actually jotted down that book as my favorite of yours. So we're on the same wavelength and honoring Dr. Hillman for all of his contributions. He's an under-honored person, probably because he was an industry rather than academia. I completely agree. You know, we don't like our heroes to come from industry. We like them to come from academia. And he was very modest. I mean, as tough as he could be and sometimes very bold and very, in some ways, abrasive, he was a very humble man. He did a lot of things that other people got credit for. And he always, he never pushed it. He always just stood back. And he was brilliant. Just in the last couple of years of his life, he wrote the, when Merck essentially retired him, he just wrote these kind of state-of-the-art papers, which just stand today as just these sort of monuments of clear thinking. He's just an amazing guy. So, and Paul, I think you did a really nice tribute in that book, and I agree with Bill. It's one of my favorites as well. How about title of your next book as a coming attraction? <laughs> Right. I think, uh, well, National Geographic Press was interested, who did a book I had written called Pandora's Labs, or Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, doing sort of the future of COVID. Right now, I'm working at the tentative title is Tell Me When It's Over. Mm. Uh, we'll see sort of how that works. But I have mm. to have that to them sometime by the end of this year, or the beginning of next year. So I'm working you on must, that. In your you spare time. <laughs> <magic> crystal ball. <laughs> right. So think about that. Here, you're writing a book, probably comes out in the spring of 2024. You know, basically you're being asked to predict things for a virus that pretty much we all have been wrong about it at some point. <laughs> so, Paul, I'm going to ask the question I love to ask is, so what most keeps you awake at night these days? Other than the book deadline. No, I'll be honest with you. I think that there is a certain, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. I think there is a certain level of COVID vaccine exceptionalism. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, although I think we're starting to move a little more to the endemic stage, but we'll see. And I do fear, if you look in the Trump administration, for example, the I think the FDA's arm was twisted to approve hydroxychloroquine when there was no evidence that it either worked to treat or prevent the disease. And within a few months, you knew that it didn't do either, that in fact, it could cause serious uh, cardiac arrhythmias. And so then they withdrew their EUA. So that was a bad example of, of, I think, how the FDA could have its arm twisted. I do worry now that the administration can bypass these committees at some level and because they have this idea of how they want to see things done and they move things along without necessarily having all the data. You know, in, in a better world, and obviously we're doing things much more quickly, in a better world, you generate data, then you go to the FDA advisory committees and you vet those data. And then if it's vetted and considered to be of value, then it goes to the CDC advisory committees where then recommendations are made. But it goes sort of data and then advisory committees and then 
policy. Here, I feel like we're sort of skipping right to policy at some level <laughs> on some of these things, but we can talk about that more if you want. That that actually does worry me a little bit, that we are moving forward sometimes without all the day. You look at the bivalent vaccine story. I mean, there you had a vaccine that was approved by the FDA without really ever going to the committee, at least for the current vaccine, you know, the BA4, BA5 containing vaccine. And you know, there was a lot of evidence presented on the June 28th committee meeting that made you wonder whether that bivalent vaccine was going to be any better than the monovalent vaccine is the booster. And um, I still am looking for that first piece of evidence that shows that it is better. Still not <laughs> seeing it. This has been wonderful and always entertaining. Before we sign off, I'll, I'll throw you the softball and ask you, what is the biggest myth that you would most like to bust? That you need to treat fever. You know, I think that um, people see <laughs> as their enemy, and this also applies to vaccines, uh, you know, that when fever is part of our adaptive immune response, if fever is a product of your immune system, we generate fever because your immune system works better at a higher temperature. And so when you treat fever, you know, you can prolong or worsen illnesses, as have been seen in many studies. You can decrease the immune response to vaccines. And we're just so quick to reach for that acetaminophen because we feel better. But the fact is, is that, you know, the fever is there for a reason. And it's interesting. One thing that was true was when early on, when people were doing vaccine trials, COVID vaccine trials, and people would volunteer for those trials, that, you know, they would either get vaccine or placebo. And I had a friend of mine who says North Carolina who didn't know what he was going to get. So then he gets a shot. The next day he's got, you know, he's got fever and a little joint pain and muscle. He's thinking, yes. I got the vaccine. See, that's the right attitude. That's the right <laughs> attitude about that. Well, we've been talking today with our friend and colleague, Dr. Paul Offit, who is the co-creator of the rotavirus vaccine and is director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a person who has successfully joined science with the development of public health policies. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. You can follow, like, share, and download episodes on all streaming platforms, as well as find us at nfid.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners, so send us your questions, your comments, your concerns that may be infecting your mind. <laughs>